Jesus was the master teacher, and there are a lot of ways for us to master that as we look through his public ministry. We can see Jesus being the master teacher as he gives out object lessons and he points to the things that are around to show what it was, this deeper spiritual truth that he was trying to present. Jesus was a master teacher in that he never lost a debate in which he found himself and he masterfully turned logic on those who were trying to use what they thought were the supreme arguments that could have been argued in those cases. Jesus was a master teacher in that he demonstrated the great way to build and to grow the maturity of others through his mentoring system that if we are wise, we use in duplicating today. But I suppose that one of the greatest ways that Jesus demonstrated his masterful nature as a teacher was through the asking of questions. You ever thought about Jesus and the questions that he asked Did you ever wonder how many questions Jesus asked during the course of his public ministry so far as the Bible records them for us? A man by the name of Martin Copenhaver in a book that he wrote about the questions of Jesus tells us that Jesus asked 307 questions as is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. While I find that remarkable, a man by the name of Bob Tide did his own count and came up with a different number. I don't know how they determined that through the original language or through a different version, but he came up with 339 questions. But he does more than that for us, that is to give us a number. He tells us why or the various categories of questions and why Jesus would have asked them. When you look through the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus asks some questions in order to try to bring about engagement, to try to draw somebody in and to make them a part of the conversation or the thing that he was teaching them. You'll also find that there are times when Jesus asks questions in order to try to build relationships. The questions themselves are used in such a way as to try to build a bond or a rapport with the people that he's conversing with. You'll find that there are other occasions when Jesus asks questions and he does so in order to try to get people to think. You know, when we consider the questions that we ask sometimes, we know the answer. We're not searching for something. We're trying to get people that we're speaking to to open up their minds. You'll see that Jesus asks questions in order to create conversation. And sometimes Jesus asks questions in order to get people to look inside of themselves and to draw their own conclusions. While I guess, or I suppose that we can be annoying with the questions that we ask, if they're asked well, as of course Jesus perfectly did, there's great effect in the questions that we ask. Now there are a lot of different ways to look at the questions of Jesus But have you thought about what were the last questions that Jesus asked chronologically? That is, as far as the Bible records them, what are the last questions Jesus asks before he ascends to heaven? The questions that we find in John 21, so far as we can see and put it together, are the last questions that Jesus asks. And I think you're very familiar with this particular context. In John chapter 21... And the Bible says that after they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said unto him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he asked him a second time, saying, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
And he says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said unto him, Shepherd my sheep. He had said to him, Tend my lambs. And then he says a third time unto him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved that he would ask him a third time. And so he said, Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he said, Tend my sheep. Now as we look at this particular question, I want us to look at it more closely tonight. As somebody read the bulletin this morning, they came up to me and they said, Yes, Neil, we do. I said, no, this is not my question, do you love me? This is Jesus' question in John 21. And I want you to notice some things in the context that can help us to appreciate this question more. As we look at the context that leads to this question, I want you to observe with me by way of introduction that Peter is struggling with his past. It seems that, Jesus, that Peter rather is struggling with his past in the statement that he makes to the six men that were introduced to with him in John chapter 21 in verse 1. Because in verse 2 he says, I am going fishing. We remind ourselves that Peter was a fisherman by his profession when Jesus called him. And you remember that Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, comes up to Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19. There's an interesting difference. When you're fishing for fish, you take what is live and you bring it in and it dies. But when you fish for men, you take what is dead, you bring it in, and it lives through Jesus. That's been the two contrasts in Peter's life. And it seems that Peter's wanting returned to his comfort zone, to that more uncomplicated life that he had before Jesus calls him. And John MacArthur, in commenting on this particular conversation, says that there is a contrast of two dependencies here. There's the dependency that they had on themselves and the life that they had before Jesus called them. And then there's the life of the dependency that they had in gospel ministry to rely on Jesus' power and Jesus' provision. And that's the same choice that you and I face. We can either depend on our life as it was before Jesus or we can depend on our life with Him. But I don't want to miss the fact that behind this question that's asked of of Peter by Jesus, that Peter is struggling with his past. What he was before Christ, and what he knew in Christ, and where he has been since he's left Christ. But then we also see in this conversation that Peter is reminded of his past. And when you look at what happens here in John 21, it seems that Peter is reminded of different stages of his past. Will you notice with me in John chapter 21 that he is perhaps reminded of the very beginning of his interaction with Jesus? In John chapter 21 and verse 6, you have Jesus who addresses uh, Peter and the other disciples and he says to them, put your net on the right side and lower it and you'll have a great catch. Does that remind you of anything? Does that sound familiar? And I wonder if there's Peter as he's hearing this command from the man on the shore who's got a fire going, as he, if he thinks back to Luke chapter 5, at least as we remember it, In Luke chapter 5, Peter is introduced to us by Luke and it's in that context that Jesus says, let down your net. And you remember there was a net full of fish? And I wonder if this is a reminder to Peter 
of the very moment that he met his Lord. And now on the beach after the resurrection, here is this call for him to be reminded of that great moment. But I think maybe there's another moment. It's early on in the ministry of Jesus when Jesus' ministry is being successful and that there are so many people following Him. There are only two events in all of the life of Christ that are recorded in all four Gospels. One, of course, is the great resurrection. And the other event is the feeding of the 5,000. Those are the only two miracles in the four Gospels. And do you remember in John's account of the feeding of the 5,000, there's the bread and the fish, the same thing that's the breakfast that morning. And it's on the occasion in John chapter 6 when there's the bread and the fish that there have been so many people who are following Jesus. And then Jesus follows up with some spiritual teaching and it's so intense that a great many of them turned away and they followed him no more. And you recall that Jesus turned to his disciples on that occasion in John chapter 6 and he says to them, will you also go away? And who is it that answers? Simon Peter. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Surely Peter's head is swimming on this occasion in John 21 with the events on the shore and the call to go there. But maybe there's also another event, an event that had happened just a few days before what's happening right now. There's the event in which Jesus has been arrested and Peter has denied him. He's denied him three times. And as these events are taking place in John chapter 21, there's the denial that's surely fresh in Peter's mind. He denied Jesus before the slave girl in John chapter 18 and verse 17. He denies Jesus in front of the crowd in John 18 and verse 25 as the pressure is building. And then finally he denies Jesus in the presence of the slave of the high priest in John 18 and verse 26. Maybe what Jesus is doing is reminding him that he has got to handle his sinful past appropriately. But in connection with that, I want you to see that that Jesus also wants to help Peter overcome his past. He wants him to overcome it. And I think the way that he does that is in a couple of ways. First of all, have you ever noticed some of the subtle contrasts between the denial... In John 18, and what happens here in this conversation in John chapter 21. I find it remarkable, for one thing, that Jesus is denied by Peter under the cover of darkness. How do we know this? In John chapter 18 and verse 3, when Jesus and the disciples are in the garden of Gethsemane, the soldiers come with lanterns and with torches, John 18 and verse 3, and they carry Jesus away. And the denial takes place just a few hours later. And so in the cover of literal darkness and in the cover of spiritual darkness, Peter has denied his Lord. But you notice what happens in John chapter 21, this conversation that takes place in verse 15 through verse 17 has as its backdrop the verse 4 that says that all of this took place at daybreak. Has Peter is going to stand before the light of the world. He does so in literal light. And he does so in spiritual light. Here's a contrast that Jesus sets up for him to help him to overcome and to forget his past. Oh, he has failed miserably just recently. And Jesus wants to show him a contrast. But there's another interesting contrast, at least to me. 
that in John chapter 18 and verse 18, Peter has accompanied John into the courtyard of the high priest. And you remember that after he's denied Jesus once already, that he warms himself in front of this coal fire that's recorded for us in John 18, 18. Isn't it interesting how the Holy Spirit, through his writers, gives us these details that just jump off the page? In John 21 and verse 9, Peter comes ashore with the other disciples. And where are they? They're with Jesus eating a meal in front of a coal fire. A fire, does it remind Peter of his past and then it sets him up? Because we see the contrast that Jesus has denied, been denied three times by Peter in John chapter 18. He's been, uh, he denies him in front of his enemies. And Jesus sets him up with the opportunity to confess him before his fellow believers. And so he helps him overcome his past with, it seems to me, some subtle contrasts. But also he gives him a job to do. Isn't it interesting that some of God's greatest heroes, when they have failed most miserably or at the lowest point in their life, that God comes along and says, let me give you a job to do that will get you back in a place where you can be a healthy, effective servant for me. Here is the dejected and the failed Peter whose Lord comes to him and says, Listen, I want you to go and tend and shepherd my sheep and my lambs. Tonight, let me ask you, do you love someone with a past? With a sinful past? Of course you do. And you do so as one who yourself has a sinful past. Have you thought about the fact that everyone that Jesus loves, he loves, has a sinful past? Everyone that Jesus loves has a past full of things that are done that should not have been done. Have a past filled with things that have been neglected to be done that should have been done. When we're looking at this conversation and this question in John chapter 21, we're not just looking at a figure, an apostle that lived 2,000 years ago. If we'll really pay attention, we're looking in the mirror. We're looking at ourselves and we're encountering Jesus. If you will tonight put yourself, I'm going to use Peter's name, but I'd like you to put your name there. And I want you to think about Jesus having this conversation with you. And it's no stretch, is it? Because you have failed Him. You have fallen short of His will. There are sins and shortcomings in your relationship with Jesus. And through the gospel, He comes up to you and He asks you this question. And I want you to think about what this question reveals. Do you love me? What does that question reveal? I'm going to notice four things. I believe that first of all, this question reveals that Jesus initiates love. Because of what happens behind this, as as what we have already seen, I want you to think about before the crucifixion, that Jesus knows that Simon Peter is about to fail him miserably. And he says to him specifically in Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. But he said unto him, Lord, I am willing to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said to him, Peter, I say to you that the rooster will not crow before you have denied three times that you know me. 
Well, as we look further down in that same chapter, everywhere in the Gospels that Peter says, I'm not going to deny you, I'll die first, I'll go to prison with you, before the chapter ends, before the night ends, it all goes the same way. And in Luke chapter 22 and verse 62, we read in the text that says that Peter does deny him, and Jesus looks at him, and he weeps bitterly in penitent tears. And then we fast forward to after the resurrection, that the angel of the Lord sends word to the, by the women to go and to tell the disciples and to Peter that he is risen again. Mark 16 and verse 7. And Peter goes and he sees the empty tomb according to John. In John chapter 20 and verse 6. And he sees the risen Lord in John chapter 20 and verse 19. And by the time that we get to our context, John tells us that Peter among others is seeing the Lord for the third time when we're reading what we read in this text. I want you to see that here in this text that Jesus is the offended party. Look anywhere you want to in the Gospels or anywhere else in the New Testament and see if you can find a place where Peter initiates a conversation with Jesus that goes something like this. Lord, on the night in which you were betrayed, I know what I did and I know how it hurt you and I am so sorry for what I did. I thought that I was incapable of doing this and yet in the moment in which you needed me the most, I failed you, I fell away from you. Just like you said that I would. He doesn't do that. I want you to notice that though there's no conversation like this, that Jesus does not set him up in a situation where he goes, Peter, before we can go another step further, I want to tell you exactly what you did to me and how much it hurt me, and I want you to know just how much I expect of you in return. He, he does it in a, in a wiser way, doesn't he? Even though Jesus is the one who is offended, he's the one that takes the first step toward reconciliation. Aren't you thankful that that's the kind of Jesus that we serve? That though we are the ones that alienate ourselves from him, that even in that state, he's the one who says, I want to restore the relationship. John is indicating that through the example here in John 21, but he also teaches it. John, the same writer, is going to write later to the church. And he's going to say in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that loves not knows not God, for God is love. And herein is the love of God manifested, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. And gave his son to be the satisfaction of our sins. And then later he says, we love him because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 7-10 through 10 and verse 19. But John's not the only one who gives us this kind of a reminder. It's filled throughout the New Testament writer's message that though we're the violating party, that Jesus is eager to show us, look, I still love you, though you've disappointed me and you've hurt me, and I want you back. The Apostle Paul tries to convey that to the church at Ephesus when he says, when you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you walked according to the course of this world, and uh, you moved by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. 
in which we used to live in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. But God, who was rich in his mercy for the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together in Christ. By his grace, you've been saved. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. The consistent message of Scripture is the same message that we're seeing here in John chapter 21. And here's how Jesus tries to help Peter to realize that the love is there and that he wants him to respond to that. He comes up to him and very simply on three different occasions, back to back, he says, Simon, do you love me? Now much has been made of this and I realize that the scholars are divided on what's going on here. If you don't know this, Jesus uses one word the first two times he asks him. It's the the word we know. If we don't know much Greek, we know the word agape. It's the love that involves the intellect. It's the love that involves the reason and the comprehension and the purpose. And Jesus is saying, do you love me with that love? And Peter, in response, all three times, says, I like you. I have great affection for you. I even have passion for you. Someone is saying that perhaps what is going on here is that Peter is weak in his love and and Jesus is trying to drive the point home. Go higher, go higher, get to this agape love. Did you know that every time the Bible mentions the love that God has for humanity, every single time... It only uses the word that Jesus uses the first two times. That love that involves the reason and the comprehension and the purpose. God never loves man in the way that Peter says that he loves Jesus. But Jesus is demonstrating to us his willingness to come down, it seems to me. Because the third time he says to the downtrodden and the broken Peter, Peter, do you like me? Do you have affection for me? Do you have passion for me? And Peter says, Lord, you know all. You know that I do. Aren't you thankful that we have a Lord and a Savior who's willing to reach down to us and to initiate love for us? And it's all over the back end of the book of John. In John 13 and verse 1, the Bible says that Jesus loved his own to the end To the very end. In John 13 and verse 34, as we saw this morning in that great lesson, we're told that we're to love one another. Jesus says, as I have loved you. In John 14 and verse 21, we're to love as the Father loved us. He says, if you love me as uh, as I love the Father, then I will love you. And he says, if you'll abide in my love, I will love you. John 15 and verse 9, and he says it again in verse 12. He comes up to a broken and a fallen Peter. And he says, Peter, I want you to know that you, I love you and I'm giving you this opportunity to demonstrate that you love me as well. You know, it's incredible that the, the Savior that we serve not only is willing to extend an olive branch but a love note and that's what's happening in John 21. When Jesus asked this question, do you love me? He is initiating love. But second, when Jesus asks this question, do you love me? He's asking a question that requires self-examination. This is not a rhetorical question. When Jesus speaks to Peter and he speaks to him individually, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? It's a question that demands an answer from Peter. 
You know, there's a word that's found 23 times in the New Testament. It's a technical word. It means to examine. It means to test, to try, to prove. It means to examine something critically in order to determine the genuineness of it. This is a word we find in some significant passages in the New Testament. This word is the word that is used, for example, when the Bible is talking about us partaking of the Lord's Supper. You'll sometimes hear it read before we partake of the Lord's Supper. So let a man examine himself. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 28. That's our word. Or we should try to prove what the will of the Lord is. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 10. It's even the same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7 when he talks about the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold though it perishes. May be found unto praise and honor and glory. And sometimes in the New Testament... When that word is used, it is used of an action that we're to take with regard to something or someone else. Like 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, try, there's our word, the Spirit. Whether they be of God, for there are many false prophets that have gone out into the world. But when that word for examine or test or try is used with a personal pronoun, it speaks of a testing and a trying that we're to do of ourselves. Like 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Or Galatians 6 and verse 4. Let everyone examine his own work. Now, I said all that to say Jesus doesn't use that word in our context. But he is asking Peter to engage in that activity. When he point blank says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He is wanting him to look inside of himself and to see where he is. That's the way Jesus always has taught discipleship. You remember in Matthew 10, 37, one of the hardest challenges for anybody facing the prospect of obeying the gospel. One of the biggest impediments that I have seen is what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 37. When he says, he that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What Jesus is saying when he asks us, do you love me, is do you love me more than any other relationship? Do you love me more than your stuff? Do you love me more than your habits? Do you love me more than your occupation? You've got to put me above all. And so as Jesus is standing there speaking to Peter, to us... This question reveals the imperative nature of self-examination. But then third, this question that is asked, do you love me, reveals that no one can love Jesus in our place. I refer you back to John chapter 21 and verse 2. And on that occasion, there are six other men there at the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. There's Thomas Didymus, there's Nathaniel, there's James, there's John, and there's two other disciples that are present. But Peter is addressed individually and personally. And Jesus comes up to him and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Could he not have asked those other guys, hey guys, what do you think about Peter? Does he love me? And of course they might have had some insight. They spent some time. Apparently they had a good relationship. Maybe they're bound together by occupation. But they could not have known in the way that Peter knew. And that's the challenge of discipleship. That others cannot answer that question for us. You know, God or Christ does not come up to my parents and say, Gary and Brenda... Does your son love me? 
that he doesn't come up to Kathy or to my sons, Gary, Dale, and Carl, and he doesn't say, hey, does your husband, does your dad love me? He doesn't come up to the elders or the members of Lehman Avenue and say, does Neil love me? You might have some level of indication or knowledge about my dedication or lack thereof, but you can't at the final analysis answer that for me, and I can't answer that for you. You know, there are some people that I know and admire in this congregation for various attributes that you have. And even though they serve as a model and an example for me, I can't cook like you can. I can't work like you can. I can't build like you can. I can't act like you can just because we're friends, just because we associate with one another, and just because I admire you. You see, no one can love Jesus in my place for me. When you look at passages of the New Testament, there is one that we see in Jude, verse 20 and 21. It's written in the plural to Jude's entire audience where he says to uh, to them, but you building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking anxiously for the mercy of Jesus Christ to eternal life. When I look at that imperative, that command, that's to all of us. And I start to break it down where it it says, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Your presence here tonight builds me up. And I want to do the same for you. And while you can contribute to building up my faith in the final analysis, it's based on what I do. My faith is going to be built or it's going to crumble based on the investment that I'm making in it. And you may show me and teach me some beautiful things about prayer. Some ways some phrases, some thoughts, some approaches, but you can't exercise my prayer life for me. And while we come together to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, you can't keep me in the love of God. Ultimately, that's something that I must do. And in addition to that, I look at that last thing that he says, you can help me to desire the day of judgment, but you can't anxiously and eagerly await Jesus and his mercy for me. And so when I look at this question that's being asked, though it could have been asked of the other six men who were present, I understand that no one can love Jesus in my place. They can't care for me. How about what Peter says? He says, besides this giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things be in you and abound... They shall make you, that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But he who lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Of all that this text says to me, it says that I've got to be the one who's applying all diligence. If I'm not doing anything between the assemblies to build up my faith, to add to my faith, I'm not applying all diligence. If I'm not carrying my faith into all my relationships outside of this relationship... I'm not applying all diligence. If I'm not bowing my head or cracking my Bible outside of our times together, I'm not applying all diligence. 
When I look at this encouragement that we see in, in John chapter 21, verse 15 through 17, I realize that I've got a personal responsibility to demonstrate love. And we know how that works in everything else that we do. The diligence, maybe in hobbies and recreation. If you like shooting guns and you want to be a better marksman, what you've got to do is you've got to go out and get some targets. You've got to fire off some rounds. You've got to create some challenges for yourself. Maybe make the target smaller or make them further away. And whether we're talking about sports or uh, exercise and training or cooking or painting or drawing or anything else, it all works the same way. We've got to apply all diligence if we're going to reach that bottom line. The same is true in our occupation. If we wanted to apply all diligence in that relationship, maybe we'll take on a mentor or we'll take a class or we'll stretch ourselves with some assignment that we're given. When Jesus comes to us, as he does through his word, and he says, do you love me? He wants us to apply the principle of 2 Peter chapter 1 and apply all diligence because no one can answer that for us. But when I look at what Peter is asked in John 21, do you love me more than these? I look at that fourth thought, and that is the idea that when we love Jesus, we care about what he cares about. Jesus has a mission. In John chapter 10 and verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He says that two more times in that text. He says it in verse 15 and verse 17. He says it a little different way in John 15 and verse 13. He says, greater love is no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. He wants his mission to be Peter's mission. He wants Peter to care about what it is that he has cared so much about that he's given up his life, he's laid down his life for the sheep. And he wants him to take up that mission. The mission that he has had is to lay down his life for the sheep. And what does he say to Peter? He says, I want you to tend and I want you to shepherd my lambs and my sheep. You notice that he says here, do you love me more than these? Folks have also debated about this. What is he talking about? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than this catch of fish? This 153 fish? Do you love me more than the fishing business? Do you love me more than the other disciples whom you boasted and said, though all turn away from you, I will never leave you? Some would say that we could, we're just speculating if we try to say, but I do believe that there's insight in Matthew and Mark when Jesus uh, asked him and he says, though all others forsake you, I will not. He comes back humble, more wise, and Jesus in that state says to him, look, now that you have returned, now that your faith has been restored, I want you to tend and shepherd my lambs and my sheep. Difference between lambs and sheep is perhaps one of the lambs being more vulnerable, being smaller, being more delicate. But in any age and stage of life, Jesus is saying, I want you to take up the mantle of responsibility. And perhaps what John is doing is he is reminding us that Jesus had delegated this responsibility to Peter. In the passage we saw this morning in Matthew chapter 16, it's Peter that makes the great confession. And on the basis of that confession, Jesus says, I'm going to give to you, singular Peter, the keys to the kingdom. And he uses those keys to unlock the door, first to the Jews on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and then to Cornelius and the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. 
And when, as it was with Peter, so it is with us. When we care about what he cares about, it's not just saying, my Jesus, I love thee. It's proving it with our lives. It's driving us to look into the New Testament and ask ourselves, what does Jesus care about? And what Jesus cares about is captured by a word that has found most of its occurrences in the Gospels. It's found 13 times. And that word is compassion, to feel deeply for. And what does Jesus feel deeply for? What is his compassion aimed at? Well, in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 13, he is, has care and compassion for those who are sick, or who are sinners, rather. In Matthew 9 and verse 13. There are also those who are distressed and disquieted. In Matthew 9 and verse 36, he has compassion for them. He does have compassion for those who are sick. Matthew chapter 14 and verse 14. He has compassion for those who are fatigued and hungry. In Matthew 15 and verse 32, he has compassion for those that are blind. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 34, he has compassion for those who are like sheep without a shepherd. Mark 6 and verse 34, and he has compassion for the grieving. Luke chapter 7 and verse 13. And if we'll step back and look at those different groups, at the ones that Jesus says, I care about, if we'll assume the care that he has and we'll make them our responsibility look at how the church will grow because look at the vulnerable and yet receptive populations that those folks are folks who are sinners and know that they're sinners they're looking for grace for people who are depressed and discouraged and their lives are disrupted it's maybe in that situation that they are flat on their back and they can look up and they can see God or people with physical needs or people with emotional needs, people who are going through grieving situations, people who have no direction and no purpose in life. These are the sheep and these are the lambs that Jesus surely has in mind, the people he cared about when he says to Peter, do you love these? Tend my lambs and my sheep. If I'm going to answer in the affirmative, then I have got to demonstrate that I care about those that he cares about. When I look at how the Gospel of John ends, isn't it interesting that right after this, Jesus talks to Peter about his future. You remember that in the course of that, he says, you're going to have to be led out by the hand. And it's not a very pretty picture for Peter. And Peter wants to know about John. I mean, if you were getting bad news and there was a a close friend of yours nearby and you knew he was a guy that Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved, wouldn't you kind of want to know, well, what's his future going to be? You know what Jesus says basically? You stay in your lane. And that's something we often need. You worry about your own business. But he's pointing Peter ahead. And the Gospel of John ends by saying, you know what Jesus is saying is going to come to pass. And Peter seems to look back on that. In 2 Peter 1, verse 13 and 14, he says, I found it appropriate while I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, for I have realized that my, my time in this earthly dwelling to de- depart is imminent, as the Lord Jesus himself has made clear to me. I think he's referring back to John 21 in that conversation. And history tells us that Simon Peter was going to be martyred and he requested that he be crucified upside down so as not to be crucified in the same way as his great Lord. He didn't feel worthy of doing that. And John dies an old man, the only apostle not to be martyred. But I want you to focus on the fact that Jesus points Peter to his future because he loves him. 
And he sees better things for him than Peter had been able to see in himself just those few days before when he had fallen so low. You know, but Jesus also points us to our future and what's awaiting us. Aren't you thankful that he reaches across those near friends of his and he looks across the spectrum of time to today? And he says this for us. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. The Gospel of John ends with us having an assurance That we, through the things that Jesus did, the signs that he performed, can have confidence that he is the Son of God and that in believing in him we might have life through his name. And you think of all the ways that Jesus drove that home. He did so through the miracles, the signs, and the wonders. He did so through being the masterful teacher. And he did so sometimes by asking just that pointed question that we needed to answer. The question here is, do you love me? And the challenge for us is to be able to say, as Peter would say, Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. There's a a poem that has gotten very popular, memes and through social media. There's a poem that has some lines, and the end of that poem has a conclusion that's horribly misguided. Drake took those same words and he made it prominent lyrics in a song that he has released just recently. And it appears, when you begin to do research on the internet, that this is a poem that was just written a few years ago. But it's not so, I know, because my dad's not a poet. When I was a little boy, he used to quote this poem as part of an illustration that he gave. The line goes, Do you love me? Do you not? You told me once, and I forgot. Why does Jesus ask Peter, do you love me? It was not because of insecurity. He was not somehow depleted and just empty inside. Even though he loved Peter more than life itself, he, according to Acts 17 and verse 25, as God, does not need anything from man. He did not ask that out of ignorance because John 2.25 has established for us that he himself knew what was in every man. And he did not ask it in indignation. There's no trace at all that Jesus is angry when he says, Simon, do you love me? He asked this question out of interest, out of profound interest for Peter and his spiritual well-being, but also for, Peter's, for uh, his sheep and his lambs. Because he knew that with Peter whole, Peter could pursue those lost and straying ones that he needed in his fold. And he asked it out of inclination. He was bent toward, he cared about all who were not in his fold. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, he wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This question, the last question that Jesus asks on earth is a question he asks of Peter. It's a question he asks of us. Do you love me? But Jesus says, he didn't say those words verbatim to us, but he does say, if you knew my Father, you would love me, John 8, 42. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, John chapter 14 and verse 15. If you love me, you will abide in my love, John 14 and verse 24. 
He tells us that that love is proven by action. His was, his action was dying on the cross for our sins. And he says to us, despite the fact that we have a past, maybe we're still kind of living in our past and trying to come out of it. In that conversation, he would say to us, do you love me? Surely we would say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And what he would say is, then go to work for me. Serve me faithfully. Or maybe what he would say is, become part of my family. If you love me, respond to my grace by faith-filled obedience that culminates in being baptized to have your sins washed away. But if in a crowd like this tonight, more likely, you're a disciple who has denied him with your life and perhaps you need to make things right, You've been looking for that right and perfect moment to do that. Jesus stands before you through his word and he says, Do you love me? And you know that you do. And he says, Come back. You know that I want you and I'll receive you back. And then go to work for me. Perhaps it is you need us to pray for you tonight. If there's a reason that we can assist you as a child of God, if you need to respond, we would love to encourage you and help you in any way we can. Won't you come right now as we stand and sing?